morning to you all. Uh, we will I do miss seeing you uh, here today. This has been quite a uh, different week and surprising one for us all. Um, I do want to say uh, before I uh, pray is that um, if, if you're a member of Redeemer, you all know Zach and, and Rachel Hedges. Uh, this would have been uh, their last Sunday with us today, and we had intended to uh, pray for them and send them out well. And uh, so, what I want to do is we. Uh, before we begin our time in, in the Word, I want to pray for them as, as a family and then uh, also pray for the, the time in the Word. So let's do that together. Uh, Father, we do uh, thank you for Zach and Rachel and uh, their faithfulness to the brothers and sisters here. Uh, we thank you uh, for the gift they were to our body and the, and the various gifts that you gave to them which made us stronger as a body where we were weak. Um, we thank you for both of their love and commitment. We thank you for the example they set in uh, covenant faithfulness uh, to our church, and we pray that as they go out, they would find a good uh, church home, a, a healthy church that can equip them in the word and build them up in their faith, and you would use uh, their gifts and skills to also strengthen that church that the gospel may continue to advance um, uh, where, they, where they gather. Uh, we will miss them. We pray that uh, our own hearts uh, would, would remember them, remember the example they set, and imitate uh, them everywhere they imitated Jesus. Um, I pray now for our time in the Word that uh, your Holy Spirit would come and, and help us to receive this truth with, with great thanksgiving. And much joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, if you don't have uh, your Bible ready, uh, then, uh, then turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. So perhaps you have uh, seen it before, uh, two rappers engage in what's called a freestyle battle. Using improvised lyrics, they go back and forth to demonstrate who's got the better skills. But often a point comes in the battle when, when one rapper triumphs so confidently uh, he does what's called a, a, a mic drop. You do that when you know that your opponent ain't got nothing against what you just laid down. We might say that Hebrews 10 is the mic drop moment on Jesus' superior priesthood. Since chapter 5, Hebrews has been arguing that, that Jesus is the superior high priest. He, he argues this way because some are on the verge of abandoning Jesus for their old ways in Judaism. They're, they're reverting to the old covenant. And Hebrews is saying, don't do that. That old covenant anticipated a better one. Jesus brings the better one. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So to this point, we've learned that Jesus comes after the order of Melchizedek. He, he's, a, he's a priest king. 
right? He's of a superior priestly order. Uh, He brings the new and better covenant. Jesus brings the new and better covenant because he also brings the better sacrifice. Well, chapter 10 explains that better sacrifice even more. It is effective and it is final. That's That's what we will see today. It, it seals the deal, in other words. If the, if the writer here was, was in a freestyle battle with a Jewish apologist, uh, this is the moment he would drop the mic. Okay? Or, or maybe Beethoven's more your style. It's the coda in Symphony Number no. 9. That, that final emphatic section of music that, that just puts it all away. Thank you, Russell Powell, for that insight. It's the, it's the slam dunk that, that ends the finals. It's, it's the bat flip after a walk-off home run. The opponent here has nothing else to do except bow the knee to Jesus. Arguments for reverting to the Old Covenant aren't even worth considering after you see the finality of Jesus' sacrifice. But let's talk about how he gets there, and and we'll take this in four parts. Uh, The first thing he does is expose how the Old Covenant sacrifices were ineffective. How the Old Covenant sacrifices were ineffective. And that's what we get in verses 1 to 4. So let, let me read those together. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, under the Old Covenant, God instituted uh, the sacrificial system. Sin separates people from God. By sacrifice, though, God provided a way for the high priest to enter his presence he, he represented the people. The people as a whole couldn't enter still. Only the high priest could and only by way of a bloody substitute. And that happened every year. When it came to addressing the sin problem though, here, here's what that old system was lacking. Uh, he mentions several weaknesses in, in these verses. For starters, it was only a shadow Only a shadow of the good things to come. That's what he says in verse 1. It wasn't the reality. It exposed the problem. Sin separates us from God. It also pointed to the solution that we need a bloody substitute. But never did it bring the substitute we really needed. The good things to come uh, are things like real forgiveness, uh, open, unhindered uh, fellowship with God. New hearts that, that, that love God and, and gladly obey His Word. That's, that's what the shadows pointed to, but they could never actually make them happen. They could only anticipate that. 
Also, they had to be repeated, it says. They, they were continually offered every year. Right? The, the fact that they had to be repeated proved they weren't effective. We might ask, effective in what? Well, effective in making us perfect so we can draw near to God. You know, don't think perfect in the sense that uh, you've never done anything wrong. Think in terms of everything necessary to make you you whole before God's presence. That perfecting work uh, has to occur before anyone can actually draw near to God. If those old sacrifices actually worked, then they wouldn't have to continue. But they did continue, so it's clear they didn't work. The worshipers weren't cleansed inwardly. The guilt remained. Why? Well, he, he also reasons that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 4. Not one sin was decisively and finally removed by the old covenant sacrifices. They couldn't do it. And by where he goes in verses 5 to 10, and we'll see that in a moment, it's pretty clear why those sacrifices couldn't take away sins. Sinful humans need a human substitute, and, and a perfect one at that. They need someone who willingly lays down their, their human body in place of theirs. Now, he's not saying that these old uh, covenant sacrifices were bad. I mean, God didn't make a mistake in telling Israel to, to do this. He's simply saying that from the beginning that God instituted them, they were only provisional. They always pointed beyond themselves to another. If they never took away sins, and if they had to be repeated, then every time another lamb went to the slaughter. It only reminded the people of their sins. That's what verse 3 says. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Imagine that. Imagine that. Every year, you, you, you come to the gathering and, and you watch the, the high priest make the sacrifice and he enters the holy place and then the most holy place with the blood But never does that sacrifice take away your sins. It only reminds you of them. You see, Jewish tradition will teach that sacrifices did remove sins as long as you had the right motive. But Hebrews contradicts that. They didn't remove sins. They only reminded of sins. It reminds you of what you need to get rid of them, but it never actually gets rid of them. They function more like a bunch of IOUs, right? It delays the payment, but but the IOUs, they just keep stacking up year after year. Every year you become more keenly aware of how much you owe, but they never actually make the payment you need. Every year you're reminded that your sins keep you from entering God's presence. As long as you have them, you cannot enter freely. The way to God is not opened for you. The old covenant sacrifices were ineffective. Nevertheless, there was in them a shadow of the good things to come. The true form of these realities came in Jesus Christ. And that's where he goes next. Christ's sacrifice is effectual and final. It is effective and final. 
he develops this from two Old Testament psalms, uh, and Christ comes to fulfill uh, what these psalms anticipated. The first psalm is Psalm 40, and he, he uses it to show us this, that Christ came as a man to fully obey God's will, even unto death. Christ came as a man to fully obey God's will. That's what Psalm 40 anticipated about the Messiah. It's a very fitting prophecy because it foreshadows the Messiah's work against the Old Covenant sacrifices. So so look with me at verse 5. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Stop there. When Christ came into the world, it's talking about God the Son becoming man. The eternal Son, He entered our world. He, He took on our humanity to do God's will. And that event was anticipated by the words David spoke in Psalm 40. David was Israel's ideal king, if you, if you remember. Uh, God had made a special promise to preserve David's throne. But also, David eventually becomes a pattern. Right? Ben has been showing us this throughout uh, Samuel, the Samuel series. David becomes a pattern. The way David represents Israel, the way David relates to God, the way David suffers and and triumphs, these aspects of David's life point forward to Jesus. In the Psalms, God had David write about himself in such a way that it anticipated Jesus' work. Only when Jesus finally comes, it's a much greater work than what David could ever do. Psalm 40 is but another place this happens. David is in the middle of of rejoicing in Psalm 40 and and praising the Lord for his his faithfulness. David was suffering, but he he cried to the Lord. He waited patiently, and it says the Lord drew him up from the pit of destruction. And so he rejoices, and and, then he then proclaims the Lord's deliverance to other people. And his hope is that many others are going to put their faith uh, and trust in the Lord, just like he did. And then right in the middle we get these words, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. And we might think, now wait just a second. I thought God told the people to make sacrifices. Why wouldn't God delight in them if He commanded them? Because far better than sacrifice for for sin was obedience to God. Sacrifices only existed because the people were rebels. They had sin, and so the sacrifices were necessary to atone for their sins. But far greater would be total obedience. And so David goes on to assert that in Psalm 40, he says, instead of sacrifices, a body you have prepared for me. Now, if you go back and look at your, in your Bibles at Psalm 40, verse 6, um, you, it probably doesn't read that way. It has something like, you have given me an open ear. Okay, That's because Hebrews is drawing from a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that translation is interpreting Psalm 40. Okay, 
You have given me an open ear. It has to do with this this posture of of obedience, of of willingly hearing God's will and then giving over your body to then go do it. Okay? I, I mentioned that so that you don't get confused when you flip back during your quiet time to this quote in Hebrews 40, uh, verse 6. But the point is this. God prepared for Jesus a body in which he was going to be totally submissive to God's will. That's why the psalm goes on to say, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You see, the law had outlined God's will for the king. The law itself even anticipated a king who would obey God's word fully. That king was not David. In fact, Psalm 40, verse 12, actually mentions David's sinfulness. The king who comes to do God's will fully is Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews is saying. When Jesus comes to do God's will, here's what happens. The law is fulfilled. He becomes the perfect, blameless one who can actually stand in the place of sinners. He obeys God at every turn, even when it means willingly sacrificing himself in the place of sinners. You see, we sinned in the body, therefore we deserve punishment in the body. But he gave up his body in our place. Right? So that our punishment could be taken away. Jesus did everything right in the body. He deserved no punishment in the body. But he gave up his body in our place. In other words, Jesus' obedience to the will of God, even unto death on the cross, makes Jesus' sacrifice effective in taking away our sins. The debt we owed, he paid it for us. And so he goes on to say in verse 8, When he said, above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is the sacrifices, in order to establish the second, that is God's will. The will of the Father in the sacrifices was never for the sacrifices themselves to be permanent. The sacrifices begged for another to come who would fully obey God's will such that he would not need a sacrifice, but he would give himself as a sacrifice for us. Jesus is that sacrifice. And by his sacrifice, we have been sanctified it says, or, or made holy. Look at verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because Jesus fully obeyed, Jesus' sacrifice is effective. He makes us holy. You see, God is holy, and if he was to use someone or something, they had to be set apart as holy. Under the Old Covenant, that involved blood being sprinkled on the altar and then applied to the priests in a far greater way. When the blood of Christ is applied to the believer, you are set apart for God's holy service. That's what it means to be sanctified. Jesus' sacrifice 
accomplished that for you. In other words, it's effective. The others could only cleanse in some ways, that is, ceremonially, Jesus' blood cleanses us in all ways. Okay? And, that, that, and, and he does that so that we might be counted holy in his presence. All right, that's the first psalm, Psalm 40. The second psalm he draws from is Psalm 110. Uh, in verses five through ten, uh, if, if verses five to ten stress the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice, verses eleven to fourteen stress its finality. Now we've addressed Psalm one ten several times uh, before in Hebrews, and so we won't spend much time uh, there. Only to say this: Psalm one ten is also a psalm of David. Uh, it too anticipated a better king in David's line, but this king would also be a priest. Okay, so it becomes a very fitting psalm for Hebrews as it shows us how Jesus' priesthood is so much greater than the old priesthood. Okay, so, and here's the specific point he draws out uh, from Psalm 110. Jesus sat down at God's right hand. That, that's what he's trying to get at. Jesus sat down at God's right hand. So listen to the way he develops it. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service... Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." So the old priests, they had to stand daily again and again. They had to slit the animal's throat and sprinkle the blood and offer the sacrifice. Same thing the next day, always standing. And why did they keep standing? Because their sacrifices never took sins away. They had to keep offering them. By contrast, he's saying that Jesus sat down after making his sacrifice. Why? Because another sacrifice isn't needed. His death was sufficient and complete. Nothing more has to be added. All of our sins are taken away, and so he sits. He made a similar point in chapter 1, verse 3. After make, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says, After making purification for sins... Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see that? After making purification for sins. He actually made the purification, so he sits. And he ain't getting back up either. It's finished. It's final. That's, that is Jesus' mic drop moment, isn't it? The son didn't stay dead. God raised him up even more. He seated him as a man at the place of highest honor. And what that means is this. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So nothing more needs to be done for God's people to enter God's presence. Jesus opened the way for us. He enables us to draw near. So, so, for, so for those two reasons... Jesus fully obeyed God's will by giving his body in our place, and Jesus sat down at God's right hand after making purification for our sins. For those two reasons, Christ's sacrifice is effective and final. And that makes it way better than than any of those offered under the old covenant. Now, do you know what else makes it 
way better? Jesus' sacrifice means that God remembers our sins no more. God remembers our sins no more. Remember how this began in verse 3? In verse 3 it said, In these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. We'll check this out in verse 15. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Did you catch it? I will remember their sins no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. It's one thing for you to remember your sins. But it's a whole other thing when God, the Holy One, remembers your sins. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that you, you want God to remember. You want God to remember His promise. You want God to remember His covenant. You want God to remember His mercy. You want God to remember you when you are in the face of suffering. But you did not want God to remember your sins. It's not that He forgot in the sense that it slipped His mind. He's omniscient. This is covenant language here. For him to remember was for him to act according to his covenant. And his law covenant demands punishment for covenant breakers. So for God to remember your sins was for him to call them to mind in order to judge you. But this is what the cross of Jesus Christ means. God will no longer call your sins to mind for judgment because He already called them all to mind when He judged Christ in your place. There's no reason to call them to mind anymore. They've all been dealt with in Christ. There's no longer any offering for sin. Jesus' offering was sufficient. That record of debt, I talked about all those IOUs that have been building up. God erases every trace of it. Your, your offenses, your guilt, it's all cleared from your record. And in its place is the righteousness of Christ. This, beloved, is the real answer to people's guilt. This is the real answer to people's guilt. To be clear, not everything we feel guilty for is actually wrong. Right? You might feel guilty for sharing the gospel on the lunch break at work when all of your coworkers then file a complaint with HR. But that guilt would be misplaced because you did the right thing. You were faithful to Jesus to talk to them about the gospel. We're not talking about mere guilty feelings. We're, we're speaking here of real guilt for an actual wrongdoing before God. Actual blameworthiness before God. The world has its own solutions for that guilt. right? One of them is to redefine the guilt. So that it has more to do with our subjective feelings rather than God's objective evaluation of us. And once the world redefines what guilt is, 
Guess what? They come up with all kinds of solutions in order to fix it. The solution is then reduced to to merely improving the way we view ourselves. Or improving the way others view us. Or ignoring the way others view us. But little to no thought is given to the way God views us. In the world's mind. Another solution to guilt is simply to conceal it. To cover it up. Keep it hidden. Carry it with you, but but don't let anyone see it. Pretend it's not there. When deep down inside, your conscience knows that it is. Or another solution is, is to spoil the one you offended to make yourself feel better. Right? To convince yourself that you're a really good person after all. You know, you offended that person and so now you're, you kind of you buy them all these things. And you treat them extra, extra, extra nicely. At other times, people will participate in some religious activity. Another tactic is to compare your guilt to someone else's. Surely I can find someone else that's worse than me. And that makes me feel better. The world has all kinds of solutions to guilt. The problem is that none of these solutions address our real need before God. They also keep man at the center instead of God. Nor do they actually remove our sins. The real answer to people's guilt is found in Christ alone. When you trust in Him, He makes you perfect so so that you can draw near to God. Do you know Jesus? Are you trusting Him alone to remove your guilt? Only Only He can remove your guilt. So come to Him. Trust in Him. Take up your cross and follow Him. I'm speaking also to those of us who already know Jesus. I mean, we need Him as much as anybody else. Let me ask you a different sort of question, though. So, Christian, when it comes to the way you live from day to day, you try to walk out your Christian life, do you live... As if Jesus is still standing. Do you live as if Jesus is still standing? Or do you live as if Jesus is sitting? It's not uncommon for the Holy Spirit or the the Word of God to convict us of sin. Perhaps we've behaved in a sinful uh, way toward others and we know it and we we feel this deeply, very deeply. Before God, we know our offense. But do you then run freely to the Father and know His forgiveness in Christ? Or do you attempt to make some, some act of self-atonement? Do you respond like the world does and try to, try to spoil your kids after treating them harshly? Instead of turning to the Lord for forgiveness. Do you keep beating yourself up over and over again? Do you self-loathe and and say things to yourself like, Oh, I'm I'm just not good enough. Of course you're not good enough. You're rotten. And I am too. That's why we need Jesus. And this text says, His work is finished. He sat down after making purification for your sins. All of them. Past, present, and future. Walk in confidence that Jesus sat down on your behalf. 
What about your relationship with other Christians? Do you live with other Christians as if Jesus is sitting or standing? We shouldn't deny that there are sometimes serious temporal consequences for the sins we commit. Forgiveness can be present, even though the consequences might remain a while longer. But but if we're considering true forgiveness... Are there things a brother or sister has confessed to you that you're unwilling to forgive? Things that that you continue to hold against them so that you can control the relationship, so that you can control the situation. You, You hold it against them. Are they things that you want him to pay for and then keep paying for and keep paying for because you keep shoving it in his face or her face? Do you remember sins that God himself has chosen not to remember anymore? In the sense that you can't wait. You just can't wait in that relationship to tally up all the wrongs that they have done to you and then really stick it to them. To do this is to live as if Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough for them. You think something further must be added to it. It's to live as if Jesus is still standing. When in reality, the Bible says he sat down. He didn't just sit down for you. He sat down for all of the believers worldwide. All of their sins were taken away too. So we must treat each other in that light. The Bible says that judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy... We have been shown great mercy, great forgiveness here. Let us show the same to others. Also, draw near to the Lord with confidence. Draw near to the Lord with confidence. I've been interacting with a number of you about current events, COVID-19, protests, justice, racism, policies... Uh, the various ideologies driving different agendas, how to relate to others in these conversations, what's the best way forward, and and on the the questions go. And and there are multiple layers to these events, and and often people aren't willing to stop and, and listen and patiently work through the questions together. But in the midst of this, a couple of you have have said this to me. I feel very burdened to pray. These things are not easy. They're over my head. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the next steps are. I don't know how to talk to this person. It's all all heavy, but I feel a great burden to pray. Well, how great is it that Jesus' sacrifice has opened the way for you to draw near to God? 
Right? We'll cover it more next time, but the main exhortation following chapters 5 to 10 comes with verse 19, if you read it with me, uh, just real quickly. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So those of you so burdened to pray know that the way has been opened to you. You have access to the Lord God Almighty Himself. In the midst of turmoil, you can sit with the one God who is unmoved, never changing, and whose kingdom is unshakable. In the face of uncertain times, He is our rock and our refuge. So draw near to Him. Lay your burdens before Him. Tell Him your anxieties. Right? He knows you. He cares for you. He will supply you with all you need to be faithful to Him during these times. And then lastly, I want to say, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. God assures us here that Jesus' enemies are being put beneath His feet even as we speak. Notice again verse 13. It says, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Okay, the image is a king placing his his foot on on the neck of his enemies as a sign of their fall and his rise to the throne. Okay, God will put every crooked enemy beneath the feet of Jesus. And because he is exalted, the world is already heading there. The world, that's where it's going because Jesus is exalted. Now you might think, I don't know about that. It sure doesn't look like it. I see injustice, I see riots, I see vitriol and, and envy. I see liars and false worldviews driving people to act in very foolish ways. I see turmoil within the church and, and false teachers dividing the church. Sure doesn't look like he's in control. However, time after time in Scripture, we see that none of these things stop the risen Lord Jesus. Every one of those obstacles that I just mentioned, they, some of them, that even similar, rise in the book of Acts, which we've been through as a church. And never once did they stop the gospel's advance. Also, the book of Revelation mentions the, the great prostitute and the beast. Right? She, the prostitute depicts this, this, this great system of evil that's, that's rallying others against Jesus' kingdom. She has in her hand a golden cup It says, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. She murders Christians for sport. She deceives multitudes and nations and peoples. And then it says this in Revelation chapter 17, verses 16 to 17. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Listen to this. 
For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So perhaps on the ground, it looks like everything is spinning out of control. But from the heavenly perspective, they're not. God even uses His enemies to accomplish His purpose. With the things that... That's what He says, right? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose until all the words of God are fulfilled. With the things that you are seeing, He is doing the same. He's working out His purpose until every last one of His enemies rests beneath the feet of Jesus. That should give us great hope. Don't be given over to fear in this fear-ridden society. The media wants to control you with fear. Platforms like Facebook become a hotbed for fear-mongering and conspiracies seeking to keep you from faithfulness. Fear the Lord. Regard Him as holy. Give yourself to His wisdom and to His ways. Be faithful with what's placed before you each day. Each day with the the people you meet and the the tasks that you're given at work and, and at home. Be faithful with what's placed before you. Rest in God's power to bring His kingdom in His timing. This text says that God is putting all His enemies beneath Jesus' feet. Let me pray. Father, I I thank You for this good news that we've read about today. Not only is Jesus' sacrifice uh, effective and final, but we have the hope that He's going to come again to save us and to put all the unrighteous enemies and deceitful leaders of the world and Everything that is contrary to your kingdom, Jesus is going to put all of it beneath his feet, and his kingdom will prevail. Your purpose will be done, and we will be fully satisfied and joyful in your presence. We pray that you would bring that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But until then, make us faithful. Help us to carry this good news, this this real answer to our guilt. Help us to carry this to others in the world and speak it to them. Open doors for the Word to advance in each one of our lives and make us faithful to speak it as we ought to speak And Father, those who are incredibly burdened within our church of guilt or perhaps are burdened by the way they've treated others, and I pray that they would be able to run to you and find forgiveness for their sins and assurance 
of your love and your care in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.